Billy Calderson, a game-winning home run. What a moment to have it. And would you believe his first home run of the year? Former UNLV quarterback and current voice of the Rebels on radio, Caleb Herring is live right now on Cofield and Company. Playing great Vince Scully moments throughout his career. That was one that I don't think a lot of people remember. It was actually his final call at Dodger Stadium. A very unknown Charlie Culberson with a walk-off home run to close out home broadcast for Vince Scully. Caleb Herring is with us. Voice of the Rebels, played for the Rebels. Caleb, we, we have a lot to get to with uh, UNLV football. I don't know if you had anything to say. I'm not sure if you were a big radio guy, big baseball guy. Um, Vin Scully was you know, the voice of Southern California, certainly a national voice. Absolutely. I mean, uh, it, it's for the L.A. market, especially for the West Coast, and I, I'm a Dodger fan. Um, so Vin Scully was the voice of the Dodgers. For me growing up, you know, when I was younger, um, obviously I wasn't there for the, the big chunk of Vince Scully's career, but it was one of those names that you just knew, and it was synonymous with LA's, the L.A. sports scene. And he's, he's, he and Chick Hearns uh, would be the names in sports that I recognize that are just like legends uh, I mean, the broadcasting from the broadcasting sense um, in L.A. sports, both of my teams, the Lakers and obviously the Dodgers, like I said. But um, you couldn't think about Dodger baseball without thinking about Vince Scully, honestly. And, you know, I I wasn't always a big radio guy, but um, there were times, you know, on, on Sundays or driving back from church where that would be what we did. We listen to the radio on the way home before we can get in front of a TV and you hear those voices and they're, you know, um, they're synonymous with with the sports in LA. So obviously a sad day for, for Dodger fans and um, for Vince Kelly's family and friends who were near and dear to him. I obviously condolences to them for their loss, but another legend, another legend in sports is, is gone away. Well, you can't think about UNLV football without the hearing the voice of Caleb Herring in the, in the back of our minds there. <laughs> nice tribute to Vince Gully, but UNLV football upon us and uh, color commentary from Caleb during the broadcast. Fall camp is underway, Caleb. There's a race for starting quarterback. What have you seen? What have you been impressed by? What has opened your eyes? Um, what I've seen is that this this year's quarterback competition, which you know it's been pretty much every year of the Arroyo tenure so far, has been a quarterback competition uh, coming into fall camp. But I think this year's competition feels different than the past two, and I think I say that because I, I think there's a pretty considerable confidence in each of the quarterbacks at, at the top of the depth chart, the three at the top, Harrison Bailey, Doug Brumfield, and Cameron Friel. Um, I think all of them have shown the capacity or the ability to be a starter. Um, and the decision, the competition this year is more about who is the best starter for this year. Um, whereas I think in years past, it was, do we have the starter here on the roster? Um, and I think that's that's a big difference. It, it may seem small. It's still a competition, I understand. But I, I think watching all three quarterbacks in the first few practices, I've seen that little glimpses of 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 good things from all of them. Now, the difference is going to be who can be the most consistently good. Um, and they'll have fall camp to prove it. Who can dominate for, you know, four or five practices in a row where everybody, not just the coaches, start to feel like, hey, that's the guy, you know. So um, this competition is different. But I, I see three starters now. And that, that makes me feel a little bit better about where the composition ends up um, come kickoff or on August 27th. Highly advise people when you see Caleb talking to UNLV football, jump in on the conversation. 
because it's next level stuff. Uh, and I, I saw you talking to some different people. Uh, one was saying, hey, you know what? Harrison Bailey, SEC, man, transfer from Tennessee. He's got to be the guy. Yeah, and I think that's 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 from a fan's perspective that that it's it's very easy to fall into that way of thinking, and it's not you know necessarily wrong. I don't want to call it out as wrong, but it's one of those things you got to give pause. You got to pause and say, wait a minute, we still got to evaluate. Um, and in that same thread and that conversation, I mentioned that hey, we had two Power Five bounce backs at quarterback last year in competition, and neither of them actually ended up taking the starting job, and and were able to get it done and get wins produced on Saturdays. Um, and, and talking about bounce back from Ohio State and, and, and talk about Tate Martell, one of the greatest high school careers um, in, in the history of high school quarterbacking, right? And then, you know, goes to basically quarterback university, Ohio State. Um, and for some reason in his collegiate career, it doesn't pan out. And I'm not saying that Harrison Bailey is one of those guys that won't pan out, but the label of an SEC quarterback um, or, or a power five quarterback even, is is not an automatic license to be the starter anywhere or anywhere that's considered quote unquote less than whatever university you're transferring from there's still an element of of chemistry and earning it that any quarterback coming from wherever you're coming from has to establish um and and if you don't establish it and you're not the right fit um at your current university then it doesn't really matter um and i think that that a lot of people overlook that they look at the the name even going to recruiting, the high school that a guy goes to, just because he went to modern day doesn't mean he's going to be the next Bryce Young, right? And that's what a lot of the recruiting and the five-star system, that's what it turns out to be is like, hey, the guys that go to the best high schools get the best grades. You could be, you know, a top-notch player, went to a lesser-known high school, and because of that, it's held against you and you're not rated as highly. And then you end up at a UNLV, let's say, uh, or another group of five school. Um, and your talent then starts to exude from you and you start to show in more ways than one why you deserve more recognition um, from your group of five schools. So just because you transfer back, I guess, a bounce back situation does not necessarily mean that you're the next best thing and everything at the group of five school that you go to should be handed to you. And in Harrison Bailey's case, I think at UNLV, you walk into a quarterback room with Doug Brumfield and um, the, re- the freshman, now sophomore, Cameron Friel, who are, who are developing and are very talented quarterbacks in my estimation. Um, so he's going to have to earn it. Caleb Herring, former quarterback at UNLV, our football insider on Wednesdays. He's been out at UNLV practice uh, watching these guys, watching all the positions. Last thing on the quarterbacks, you know, while I'm sitting there and most people, you know, the novices are watching the throws and, you know, I'm sitting there videoing what happens to the throw. I know you made a comment to me at practice and you're like, yeah, you know what the footwork on certain guys I and mean, footwork is vital when it comes to quarterbacks. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think about when I think about footwork and people may have heard Steph Curry and this is a different sport, but it's the same concept. You hear Steph Curry talking about his jump shot. Um, and when he gets his feet set and he transfers the energy from the ground up through his wrist and he can feel when that energy transfers the right way and he knows the shots going in, um, the better his feet are, the better his shot is the more relaxed his arm can be, all those things, there's the mechanics to it. It's the same thing with quarterbacking. Um, when your feet are activated, when you're on balance, um, it transfers into your throwing motion. And there's so much of the energy that comes from the ground, which is where you know your base comes from, um, it has to transfer to your arm, otherwise it's wasted. Um, and I think that's important for young quarterbacks to realize. A lot of times when you get lazy feet, um, you don't realize it, but that energy now it has to be made up somewhere. And then you end up throwing the ball all arm. And I, I think you heard me say that before, where you're relying on your arm so much 
Um, and then you, you become inaccurate when that's the case because, you know, the, the arms swinging and all kinds of things. It's just not on tempo with your feet. So a lot of young quarterbacks forget to keep their feet active at all times. And at UNLV, Marcus Arroyo and Nick Holtz both have experience with quarterbacks and understand the importance of active feet. And you hear at practice all day long. And Coach Arroyo is with the quarterbacks most of the practice, at least for the individual periods that we're out there for. Um, he's on them constantly about activating their feet, scanning in the pocket, staying alive, not letting it die down because the results are better throws, more accurate throws, and more game simulation. I mean, when you're in the game and, and guys are rushing you, you can't have dead feet. It's, it's not going to work. You have to be able to climb, slide up in the pocket, and stay on balance at the same time. So the footwork is, is vital to quarterbacks. If you're wondering why a quarterback's not accurate, start to look at their feet and where they're opening up to the throw, if they're on balance or not, if they're throwing off the back foot. Those are indicators. Those are the first things that you'll look at to, to know why a quarterback's inaccurate when he's throwing the ball down the field. And Caleb, we're talking to Caleb Herring, uh, former UNLV quarterback and your color commentator from the UNLV broadcast. Caleb, at the other end of that are the receivers, which is going to be really important for the UNLV Rebels this season. Kyle Williams obviously getting comfortable as the leader, but your thoughts on the new guys that, um, that are in camp this season? Yeah, I think uh, for the most part, most of the guys outside of Seneca came in, uh, Seneca McKee came in over the summer. So he's he got some time um, in with the guys over the, the offseason. But you look at guys like Jeff Weimer um, and Ricky White, uh, who, who came in and and really got some time in in the spring. And I think the most important thing for the receivers and the quarterbacks is to get on the same page with their chemistry, their route running. Um, and I think Steve actually posted a video of, of one of the route concepts that they're they're working on and they're getting some timing work on as a comeback route, um, and which is one of the most difficult timing routes to, to lock in on. But the benefit of of coming in in the spring, like a couple guys did, and coming in and getting those offseason summer reps like Seneca did, um, is that you start to establish the chemistry and the trust in the receivers, the quarterbacks trusting the receivers out of the break, kind of understanding the body language of receivers in and out of breaks like the comeback route, like deep over routes and things like that, where the body language is important for the timing. So, but that in mind, I think the receivers that came in have a chance and based on what we've seen in practice are already contributing uh, on, on a big level. And I think Jeff Weimer has a chance to be a really good guy. Think about a professional, like if you go back down in history, he reminds me, I was a Rams fan growing up. Um, he reminds me of Ricky Pro for that greatest show on turf team where he wasn't the flashy guy. He's not the, you know, the fastest in the bunch, but he's kind of the, the professional in the room, the grown-up in the room, the chain mover, the guy that's going to be reliable for his quarterback. Um, he has a vocal leadership style, and I've heard that um, echoed on the field, but he's not afraid to get in there and say, hey, remember the little details, talking to all the other wide receivers. And um, Kyle Williams obviously has the, the potential to affect the game at every level, and I think Ricky White adds another explosive element to that receiver group as well. So I'm excited to see how it gels. I'm excited to see um, what kind of lineup gets thrown out there. I mean, there's guys – that have been there in the program. Um, Zyle Griffin comes to mind where you say he's he's maybe bumped down in the depth chart, but he's going to have a chance to contribute um, along with uh, the other additions that the Rebels made in that room in the offseason. That'll be an exciting group to watch and see if the explosive plays can come with the new names added. Yeah, it's a much bigger group, too, between uh, returnees like Kyle Williams and Zyle Griffin. Kyle's about six foot. Zyle's 6'2". Ricky White, uh, Seneca McKee, uh, those guys are 6'1". Um, there's even some some deep sleepers on the team. I'm very curious to see what's going to happen with Nick Williams, who came in from like Colorado Pueblo, who has kind of tweener tight end 
wide receiver size. There's always Jordan Jakes, who everyone who sees Jordan Jakes at practice in Indiana transfers like, my God, he's 6'6 and 217. What does it mean for the quarterback to have bigger targets? A catch radius is the first thing. I, I, with guys with, that are not just taller but have longer arms, um, there's room for error. I, and you don't want to be you know, that too off the mark. But you know, when you're throwing a, a route that maybe you miss a little bit with, you, you, there's, a more, there's a higher chance that the guy's going to be able to come down with it just because he has a better uh, catch radius. Um, also positioning. There's, there's routes that I think unlock um, in, an, in an offense because you have a guy that's just bigger. And there's nothing a defender can do about it, especially if you – you roll a team out there that has a bunch of short uh, defensive backs, um, the red zone jump ball becomes a, a, an absolute reality. And we saw that last season a lot for UNLV offensively. I think they're kind of handicapped in the red zone because they didn't have necessarily a big jump ball receiver that they relied on yet, where there's a lot of times you say down there, hey, take a chance, throw the fade, um, see if he comes down with the 50-50 balls. And you heard Coach Royal even this fall camp saying that the 50-50 ball was a point of emphasis for the receivers. So getting rangier receivers, taller receivers, um, is definitely a part of that. He, he, he's going to want guys that are going to be able to come down with 50-50 balls. Um, and you want to see, like you said, Jordan Jakes develop into that guy who's in the one and two rotations, at least for you know packages like that jump ball fade down near the goal line. So, um, But you know, for a quarterback, it's a luxury, right? you got guys with a bigger catch radius, guys that are able to shield people off of their body. Typically, you don't worry about them getting jammed off the line of scrimmage too much because they're just bigger. Um, then more DBs, they can create space uh, a little bit better because, again, that length, you're able to separate, push off, get guys off your body a little bit more out there on the outside. So, yeah, it definitely has its advantages, and I think quarterbacks would enjoy throwing to taller targets on certain route concepts than shorter receivers. I'll tell you, from this morning, uh, they were running some you know full plays early in practice, and Cameron Friedel rolled out, and he threw a risky ball. Uh, LeCarrie Pleasant-Johnson is a cornerback transfer in from Utah, was covering Seneca McKee, and the ball was right at uh, LPJ's helmet. McKee went over his back, grabbed it in front of his face, came down with the pass, and he probably would have scored a touchdown on the play. And that's where, mm -hmm. hey, maybe the quarterback didn't throw the greatest ball, but the receiver's good to great and just saved him. Absolutely. And and that's not the first time Seneca's done that at camp. And I, I watched uh, a touchdown that he did end up catching uh, from Harrison Bailey a couple practices ago. Or it's the same thing that you think it's a well covered, you know, defensively you're saying, hey, we did our job. We covered him about as best we could. And he goes up and finds the ball, times it up perfectly and jumps right over the top of the defender and comes down with it. And it's one of those plays where even the defensive guys on the sidelines where I'm standing as I'm watching that play are saying that boy is good. You know, like that's that's a special play from the yep. new guy. And, and guys are taking note of that. And, and, and that's a good thing. That's it. When you're a quarterback and you you start to establish that, hey, he's going to go get that ball if I throw it up to him. And early in camp, Seneca has, has separated himself as one of the guys, along with Kyle Williams, who's done it in-game before. But Seneca, in these early practices, has shown that he's got that dog in him when it comes to going and getting those 50-50 balls and come down with a couple special plays, got some oohs and ahs, sidelines fired up. So, um, like I said, looking to see how he fits and how he gels by the end of camp because I, I think he has the potential to be a big play guy down the field for the Rebels. And to the point we were building on earlier about, you know, the transfers who are in from power fives, I think Ricky White is going to be tremendous. I think he's going to be a really reliable receiver. He's a guy who, in a short stint, uh, had one game where he just destroyed Michigan. I mean, that's top competition. So Ricky White's in from Michigan State, so you have high expectations from him. They found Seneca McKee at something called Erskine College. And, and that's, you know, this comes down to, you know, dedicated, smart 
uh, personnel analysis, you know, working the phones, working your connections. And who knows, the, those two guys could be the number one and two receiver. And, you know, they were recruited completely differently coming out of high school. Caleb, I got a minute left. Um, there are days where it's listed as no practice. Right. We're still doing stuff on no practice days. Absolutely. I think, you know, a lot of times, even as players, you get you see no practice and you're like, yes, day off. I get to relax. Camp's dragging a little bit. Um, but there's so much work to be done, whether it's you don't realize the work sometimes. Like I said, uh, gelling with teammates is one of the things that you got to do during fall camp. Keeping each other's spirits up um, just to make it through the grind is, is important. Um, the film sessions, they don't stop. You're watching film. You're having meetings. There's install that happens on those days off. So the mental side is is a constant. Um, but one of the things that I think it, less mature players understand is that in that downtime, you need to be active about your recovery. You may not be injured, um, but just because you're not injured doesn't mean you can't get in the training room, um, get some ice, get some treatment, some massage, some stretch therapy, whatever you got, especially in that fatigue complex where there's just about everything you want as far as a recovery standpoint. But you need to actively be involved in your own recovery as an athlete. And that's preventative stuff and, and, and all that. If you got banged up at practice, making sure you take advantage of that time away from the field to get back to 100%. So the next time you step out there, you're less likely to have catastrophic injuries. So it's important. You see, no practice. It's not a day off. Get to the facility. Um, get around the guys. Be there um, and start to build on those kind of intangible things, if you will, so that you get the most out of fall camp um, and you're not limping to the finish line come the start of the season. Caleb, good job. I'll see you later in the week at UNLV football practice, okay? All right, man. Take care. Have a good one. There he is. Caleb Herring, one of the voices of UNLV football, former quarterback with the Rebels. Giveaway time, 364-1100, We've got comedy tickets to go see Anthony Bean. Chico Bean is in town, 10 o'clock show. That's this Saturday, Mirage Theater, Mirage Theater. You can get your tickets for Chico Bean, Ticketmaster.com. Uh, right now, though, we've got two free tickets. Ari does, 364-1100, caller 7. Join the conversation on Twitter at ESPN Las Vegas. Fernando ready in the strike two pitch is hit back to the box, dribbling to second. Samuel on the bag, close to first double play. Fernando Valenzuela has pitched a no hitter at 10:17 in the evening of June the 29th, 1990. If you have a sombrero, throw it to the sky. Now, back to Cofield and Company at the Battleborn Broadcast Center on ESPN Las Vegas. You know, we're all sad. Vince Cully passed away 94 years old. Sucks. But to get to celebrate with some of his great calls, and that was one I always thought, I'm like, he had to have that ready to go at some point during the game. Throw the sombrero to the stars is unbelievable. Unbelievable. And the other great thing, and he did it in multiple calls that we pulled today, the time mark is epic. Oh, yeah. He's, epic. That was his style. I, I, I wouldn't remember, like, 1990. I was like, man, that's, you know, Fernando was, I mean, that was that was Fernando kind of at the end of his Dodgers run. People, If people don't remember Fernando Valenzuela as, like, a super young phenom who came up, a Mexican pitcher who was unreal, and then he throws a no-hitter in 1990. I remember Fernando Mania. Oh, so it was it was crazy, man. Yeah. It was crazy. All right, football frenzy time. Give me a little uh, crunch crunch here. So I don't want to go crazy. 
on what we see in training camp, what we hear in training camp. Like we were just we were just given stories about some of the UNLV receivers Seneca McKee is in. Listen, for all I know, Seneca could be really good. He could also have a tough time adjusting and be the fifth option at receiver and have 20 catches for 210 yards, right? You don't know. They're not in full pads. The opposition's not out there. The defense really can't cover you and tackle you like they want to. So I'm just going to I'm going to throw this out there on this story. Aaron Rodgers is looking for receivers. Devontae Adams is gone. So Alan Lazard is there. You know, they've got veterans like Sammy Watkins. We're talking about two guys who need to play but don't always play because of injuries. They drafted Christian Watson high with a second-round pick. They got Romeo Dubs out of Nevada. And Dubs was one of the most impressive guys I saw the last couple of years doing the sidelines for the Rebels. And I never really understood why he didn't get more hype. He's big. He's super fast. He's really cocky and arrogant. And I was reading today, Rogers is like, okay, we might have something here with Romeo Dubs. This could be real interesting. And I remember having a conversation. I won't mention who it was, but uh, I remember having a conversation with a Vikings insider who was based in Minnesota. And a couple of years ago, like I was blown away by seeing Dubs. I think it was uh, three seasons ago. Blown away. Like, this guy is going to be friggin' awesome. And uh, the fellow I was talking to, and, and I'll actually mention his name. I'm not, now I'm blanking it because I'll probably bring it up to him. Um, ah, I'm blanking out. Ron Johnson, um, who played a little bit in the NFL. Well, I, I compared Rashad Bateman, who's with the Ravens, who wound up being a first-round pick. And I was like, hey, who's going to be better, Rashad Bateman or Romeo Dubs? And this guy had called Nevada games, and he was like, oh, like Bateman. I'm like, okay. Hashtag never forget. I always remember. So we'll see. But like like I said, this could be this could be Rodgers just pumping up a rookie receiver, and Romeo Dubs could have six catches for, you know, 28 yards this year and not, not make a mark. So we'll see. But the openings are there on the Packers for receivers to step up. And guess what happens? With guys like Mahomes and Rodgers, they make receivers great. So that could be a perfect landing spot for this kid who played for the Wolfpack. And, you, and you know, yes, we're down here in Las Vegas, but this is good for the state of Nevada. We want, we want stuff like that. Cofield and company will be back in minutes right here on ESPN Las Vegas. Little roller up along first. Behind the back. It gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight and the Mets win it. You're listening to Cofield and company live from the Battleborn Broadcast Center on ESPN Las Vegas. You know, we talked about Vin Scully passing early in the show. We're going to talk about a lot more with John Sandler, who's an L.A. guy, uh, has done UNLV now for you know near 20 years and, you know, a play-by-play guy we all respect. Um, but I hope I didn't – when I was describing Scully earlier, and it sounded like I was describing him as a regional announcer, he, he wasn't. He was a national voice of baseball. And for me, growing up on the East Coast, like I remember – I was not a Mets fan. I hated the Mets. But I also hated the Red Sox. So I couldn't win in that series. But that call there – the Buckner call because yeah. the local call on Mets radio was awesome. Bob Murphy, you did the local call unbelievable, but that call by Scully was great because then he's like, this crowd is going bananas. I'm not speaking. Right. And he didn't, he didn't speak for like two and a half minutes. He's a master. Of that. He, he was, he was, he was unreal. Um, I wanted to get to his football career in a second, but speaking of football, football season's here. So Willie's got a brand new show Saturday mornings, nine o'clock start. Golden Circle Sportsbook and Bar inside Treasure Island. 
Yeah, it's going to be great. Me and Gooch hooking up 9 to 11. Free parking, great drink and food specials, 24-hour gambling kiosks available. And, of course, he and I are going to go old school, man. We're going to talk about – I mean, we're going to talk local stuff. Raiders, UNLV, Gold Knights. We're going to have you on on game days, talk Las Vegas Aces. But we're going to have some fun doing some old Vegas uh, topics. Mags will be on the uh, the producing end. So should be a great time. Make sure to tune in every Saturday. And if I'm not around and I'm busy doing something – our boy JVT is going to jump in, and I'm looking forward to this season. Gooch and I have already talked it out. We're going to have some old school music going in, some old school Vegas talk, and all your local topics, not to mention some sports betting topics as well. So tune in starting this Saturday. Third and three. We'll see a pick of some kind on the right side, possibly. Montana looking, looking, throwing in the end zone. I've totally forgot about that one. That When we were collecting the Vast Sound crew here at Lotus Broadcasting, all of his baseball calls, and I knew he had done football, I'm like, my God, he was on the catch? He was on the catch. Yeah. Still still devastating to me. You know, it's, it's, that that play, that play, there, there's a story behind that. We don't have time to get into it, but I obliterated a footrest in my grandfather's family room. <laughs> it went flying. Yeah. It went flying across. I locked myself in the bathroom crying. They came and tried to make it better by saying, you know, they did. They almost came back. I said, that makes it even worse. But I don't loathe the Eagles, the Giants, or the Washington franchise as much as I do the 49ers still 40 years later. Join the conversation on Twitter at Cofield and Co. Fastball is a high drive in the deep left center field. Buckner goes back to the fence. It is gone. marvelous moment for baseball what a marvelous moment for atlanta and the state of georgia what a marvelous moment for the country and the world a black man is getting a standing ovation in the deep south for breaking a record of an all-time baseball idol and it is a great moment for all of us and particularly for henry aaron who was met at home plate not only by every member of the Braves, but by his father and mother. He threw his arms around his father, and as he left the home plate area, his mother came running across the grass, threw her arms around his neck, kissed him for all she was worth. You're listening to Cofield and Company, live from the Battleborn Broadcast Center on ESPN Las Vegas. I don't think there's anyone in the history of broadcasting who could have nailed that point on so many fronts like Vin Scully did on 715 by Hank Aaron. That was an amazing, amazing call. And we're uh, celebrating the life of Vin Scully, who uh, passed away last night at 94 years old. A lot of good conversations coming up. I'm really looking forward to this one. Willie Ramirez, Cofield. Let's do it, Willie. Yeah, i got to welcome to the show. Great friend of mine that, of you know, I, I realized it to, just today when I was going over my notes 30 years ago. Riddick Bowe and Evander Holyfield won 1992. Here I am, fresh into my journalism career, working at the Las Vegas Sentinel Voice, the state's only black newspaper. Young budding reporter, just rolling up onto Big Daddy Bowe and Rock Newman, promoter, manager, great name in the business, and Rock always, always shared time for us. Rock, welcome to the show. Willie, man, it is absolutely a pleasure to be talking to you and Cofield. Uh, <laughs> thanks for inviting me on. So, Rock, I, I, I want to start with 
real quick if you can touch upon this because you know a lot of people they they hear of Riddick Bow era but they don't realize that you had been in boxing since the early 80s you you're in the sports realm um the call that you just heard by Vin Scully as as we rejoin the show for him to embrace so much as we've heard with so many calls but to point out in 1974 you know and 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 sort of just set the scenery but the bravery and to, to put it out there that celebrating a black man in the South and what that meant in passing Babe Ruth. This was a this was a man who was threatened, right, to, to break the record that they, they had to have snipers and security all around. Um, do you remember that? I I absolutely remember it. It was my uh, it was my senior year as a college student at at Howard University, and, you know, I, I, I was I was the captain of the baseball team at Howard for three years, so an avid, avid baseball fan. And, you know, I was very attached to Aaron's journey, not just, you know, hitting the home runs, but understanding the pressure that was upon him there, you know, in the, in the Deep South. And, man, I'll tell you, listening to Vin Scully, listening to you all play that now, I was like, Lord, let me, let me try to get myself back together because I, feel, I feel, uh, literally, I got chills. Vin, Vin Scully, it, Vin Scully is, is the greatest. It, he, to, me, to me, Vin Scully is the greatest to call a baseball game. Uh, you know, the, 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 the Colfax no-hitter. The Kirk Gibson crazy home run, the the the, the impossible and improbable just happened. <laughs> ben Scully is the best, but yeah, I'll tell you, you know, going back again to that 1974, my coach at Howard University was uh, Chuck Hinton, and Chuck Hinton, you know, played with and against uh, uh, Hank Aaron and Willie Mays and all the greats. And he used to tell us, you know, stories about them, man. And, um, you know, for Hammering Hank to hang in there in spite of death threats to him, to his wife, to his family, and just to be able to concentrate and compete, you know, is much, much more than, uh, uh, you know, than, than a baseball player right now. You know, we're hearing so much about the greatness of Bill Russell beyond the basketball court. Hank Aaron has the same attributes where he was a giant, not just a giant of a baseball player. He was a giant of a man. Speaking of Rock Newman, Rock, and, you know, it got me watching so many videos on, on YouTube. And, you know, what popped up was this old video of, Muhammad Ali and Howard Cosell and the relationship that those two had were just so special. Angelo Dundee was in the front row. And I mean, those were some special times way back then. And, and of course, when I met you um, in the early 90s. But as I mentioned before, you have been in, you had been in the boxing game since the early 80s. And I know there have been some things that have soured you for quite some time now. And it's 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 I know that hurts you deeply in terms of. But can you go back to your early days in the boxing and sort of just your start in the early 80s and what it meant to you? Well, let me go back. Let me go back, Willie, even before that. 
Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, is the one human being who had the most impact on my life, period. I'm talking, I'm talking full stop. Ali, Cassius Clay, had the greatest impact on my life. I was an insane fan of Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali. My father was a big Joe Lewis, Jersey Joe Walcott fan. And we used to watch, even when I was six, seven, eight years old, Gillette Cavalcade of Champions. So I've always had an interest in, I always had an interest in and a love for boxing. And when Ali came along, and the night he won the title was an extraordinarily seminal moment in my life because everyone in my sphere of influence laughed at me because I believed that he could become the heavyweight champion of the world. And that night when the fight was over, I literally, it was February the 25th, Freezing cold, a little bit of snow on the ground in our little country home out in Brandywine, Maryland. I ran around the house barefoot with pajamas on, screaming like a maniac because (laughs) I was so attached to that outcome and so in love with Ali. So much so that I'll give you a little something. This is the legend of Cassius Clay, the most beautiful fighter of the world today. He talks a great deal and brags and beady. The muscular punch is incredibly speedy. The fistic world. (laughs) 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 And I can go on and on. I can go on and on, but I don't, we don't have time here. But, um, so yeah, so much. So yeah, officially becoming a part of boxing in the 80s but a passion that ran long and deep and in part prepared me somewhat for the madness because I studied the game so intensely as a result of watching all that Ali did, all that he went through. Um, To say he is my ultimate hero is an understatement. Rock, one of the things that you also studied, it wasn't just the science inside the squared circle. It wasn't just the game. You studied the business, and you said once, I believe it was to Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes, I'm not going to allow boxing to dirty me. Was that hard back then to stay clear of the sports dirty politics? Because I know you took it upon yourself to study the business aspect of it, to not allow that to infiltrate your business? I will tell you candidly that the answer to that is yes, because it was boxing. The the, the business part of boxing is corrupt in so many ways. I used to always say that the organizations, the WBC, the WBA, the IBF, all of them, they were a cancer on the body of boxing because every one of those organizations were for hire. The people at the top were for hire, whether it was Jose Suleiman, whether it was Bob Lee, whether it was uh, Mendoza for the WBA, they were all corrupt. You could get a fighter ranked by paying these guys in one form or the other. And, you know, just, just, just point a gun 
and and they're all they were all corrupt, and they were corrupt in their relationship with promoters, managers, and I just never became a part of the fraternity of boxing. You know, it, 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 I was always criticized by the by the by the so-called big boys, King Aram Duva. Um, you know, and I wore their disdain as a badge of honor. <laughs> so, you know, I made that comment to Mike Wallace, and I didn't know what the question was going to be or anything else. My wife says that's one of her favorite comments I've made. So he, Because Mike Wallace said, so you, Rock Newman, you're going to clean up boxing. And my genuine, most honest answer was, I don't know if I can clean up boxing but I'm not going to allow boxing to dirty me. Rock Newman is up on Cofield and Company. Willie Ramirez, Steve Cofield. Uh, could you see what was going to happen to boxing, which is still popular, but it's not as popular as it was, and I think a lot of this comes at the hands of what UFC and MMA has done. You know, you know I, I, I actually stole a quote from, from Burt Sugar. Uh, who was a former uh, editor of Ring Marriott Magazine and one of boxing's, literally one of his great, one of boxing's great character. I remember after the um, uh, Marvin, after the Marvin Haggis Sugar Ray Leonard fight, Bert Sugar sitting on the diving board with a scantily clad hooker at the pool. <laughs> <laughs> at Madison, at Caesar's Palace, and she said something to him at one point with hat, suit, tie, and cigar. He just went into the pool. So, so he's one of the great characters in the sport of boxing. Um, but uh, Bert said that people would say, "Oh, this particular incident gave boxing a blind, uh, 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 a blind eye." Yeah, Bert, a black guy, a black guy. Yeah. Yeah, Bert yeah. said, "No, boxing has long, if not forever, been blind to fairness and justice." And I mean, you know, we can go back to the days of Jack Johnson and 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 probably before. But you know, to see what happened in those times where talented African American and other minority pugilists. Uh, 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 were denied the opportunity, um, you know, and right on up until, you know, I remember a fight. I remember a fight where Oscar De La Hoya fought Ike Corte. That was an extraordinarily competitive fight. I thought that it could have been a draw if you gave Oscar the decision or if you gave Corte the decision. I'm sitting there being very objective. And if I'm not mistaken, Bob Arum had flown in a judge from Japan. And this judge judged that fight totally lopsided. My feeling is that was a pure form of a payoff and corruption to make sure that Oscar De La Hoya won that fight. So there's so many things that happen, that speak to the corruption. Don King used to call it 
trickeration. <laughs> it, <laughs> he had a lot. It was a lot of trickeration going on. That truly was another word for just pure out and out, uh, 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 um, out and out corruption. Rock. We could do this all day. I have one more for you. I mean, this, you and I could, could talk so much, and so many people could learn from you. Um, there still was, though, regardless of the corrupt era, and I believe it probably was the entire era, but there was a certain element of specialness when boxing was coming to Las Vegas, whether the fight was at the pavilion behind Caesars or the stadium. No matter where it was, before the, even the Grand Garden was built at the MGM, can you yeah. just touch upon and tell the list? I mean, just oh, what it meant. I mean, my, you put on your best. My Lord, my Lord, when you're talking about special, if we could get rid of the it, some of the TV executives and some of the promoters and some of the managers, you know, and just look at the warrior mentality of the most mano a mano of all sports, and you go and you start to talk about Muhammad Ali coming through, again, Muhammad Ali coming through the ranks in Vegas, and you talk about uh, 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 September the 16th, 1981, Hearns versus, uh, Hearns versus Leonard, and that spectacular, spectacular, thrilling fight. You, you take Hagler and, 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 and Hearns, just man, the competition was so strong, was so powerful in multiple divisions. You take Alexis Aguayo and Aaron Pryor, man. Wow. So when you talk about, you know, m m my issue was I loved boxing and I hated the business of boxing. Yeah. Um, you know, I've morphed. I got to tell you, you know, you mentioned that you know some things that soured me. I've morphed where I don't much look at boxing now, but you are absolutely referring to what to what I, to what was unquestionably the golden days of boxing, and Vegas was the magic that made it happen. Rock, we got a minute left here, Willie. I know you wanted to ask about a show, right? Well, I just want to make sure people are aware that they can tune into the Rock Newman Show because I think that you can see it online, right? This is a PBS broadcast back east. Yeah, I do. Yeah, it was a previous broadcast, but we actually went down when COVID came. The entire studio was shut down. But my my YouTube audience continues to grow with the content. They had the Rock Newman Show YouTube page. Um, you know, we now man are, are well over a hundred and fifty thousand subscribers, and I will be bringing that back live in uh, in the month of October of this year. Man, Rock, uh, I can't wait. You keep me, obviously, we, we communicate often on Facebook. We're friends. Um, we've been friends. I love you, brother. I appreciate you coming on. We want to have you back on definitely uh, at another time. I got a new show coming out on Saturdays. We'll have you back. We'll talk some old Vegas. I appreciate your time tonight. I know you're on the East Coast, and I will talk to you soon. Rock Newman, everyone. Hey, uh, Willie, tell, yes. tell, tell your son I'm getting ready to enter a program and I'm going to come out of that program with a body like his. <laughs> <laughs> I will do this. Thanks, Rock. Right, we appreciate buddy. it. Thank you so much. Take care, guys. Take care, guys. <laughs> there he is. Rock Newman worked with Riddick Vaux.
You know, Bo went after him like seven years ago. Said he uh, he stole a bunch of money, and then Bo had to retract it and send an apology. And, you know, and the two of them worked with one of the greatest cornermen ever in Eddie Futch. Called him Papa Smurf. And they took care of good care of him. Now let's get Rock on more often before yeah. some of the big He's fights fantastic. coming up. There aren't as many big fights in boxing as there used to be, but certainly Rock is a, a great voice. Five o'clock hours on the way.